Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Everyday Theology, I have yet again, I'm not going to say that in a bad way, that's a very good way of saying yet again, uh, my good dear friend, uh, Chris Green, who is just one of my favorite people to talk to. So if you're like, he's been on a lot. Yeah, he has. And I don't think that's going to stop, although I'll stop begging Chris so much in the future. But Chris, I'm rambling to say, hey, welcome. Thanks for coming back. Love it. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I appreciate the chance to chat with you. And recording it just as uh, icing on the cake, as they say. Yeah, right? I mean, we, we typically have some odd off-the-wall conversations, as it were. So why not just throw a mic in front of our faces? Uh, and now that even though everyone else can't see because we don't have the video on Apple or whatever, we can see each other better because uh, my streaming platform is upgraded in the likes. So now I even get to actually see you while we talk, which is even better. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you're, you're as handsome as your voice is smooth, Aaron. So I, so I not very handsome. <laughs> I phrased that very carefully, didn't I? No, of course. <laughs> um, hey, Chris, you know, the subject that we have today is definitely one that, I, you know, unfortunately, I feel like it's been talked a lot about, and yet it seems to be such a recurring conversation um, because we just keep having examples or having problems or having issues. But, you know, when we were texting about what we were going to talk about, you kind of brought up this idea about talking about failures, especially moral failures in leadership. Um, and, you know, at the time of this recording, it's really in light of what we've seen happen with uh, what's come out with Ravi Zacharias in the, in the previous days. But, you know, I'm just going to open that up for you and say, I know you've got some deep thoughts on this, but let's have a good conversation. What do we what do we do about this within our church world and in our world in general with this consistent failure of leadership? Yeah. Well, I I have thought about it some, and I I have a lot. I think that I'm thinking through still. I I think it's hard to talk about it well. I think it's it's easy to talk about aspects of it. I think it's hard to talk about it with enough dimensionality, enough faceted understanding yeah. or yeah. Enough, it's faceted enough to kind of get at, you know, the different dimensions of an issue like this. So, so here's an example of what I mean. I think one of the knee jerk responses is to go right to the problem with Christian celebrity culture. Mm. Now I think there are problems with Christian celebrity culture, but I'm not sure it's as simple as giving a label like that to a set of dynamics and, and and assuming that we've now diagnosed what's wrong and that somehow if Ravi hadn't been 
quite as celebrated, he wouldn't have been quite the predator. I'm not sure that it's mm. quite, I'm not sure it's that simple, right? In his right. case or in any case. And, and so a lot, a lot to say about that. One is, I'm not sure that famous people are any more wicked than people we don't know about. We just know about them, right? right. You know, right. there's a, a scandal in our housing edition right now because there was a family who had an adult son, a severely disabled adult son, who was found. He had his own computer, and they found child pornography. So, mm. Mm. no, I don't even know the man's name, right? I just yeah. know that it, the the news in the neighborhood and the way it showed up on the neighborhood Facebook conversation, right? And so, I not that he's a predator, right? I mean, I don't mean to equate him to Ravi Zacharias, but I, I think that it's probably true. I, I, and my, my time as a pastor suggests that it's true that there are plenty of people who are terribly, terribly abusive and predatory yeah. that are anything but celebrities. Right. right. I, so I'm not sure that it's, it's really a, a, a result of the celebrity culture. Right. And in, in the same way, I think it's it's too quick. We're often too quick to blame institutional systems, right? So, like in the Roman Catholic Church with the the priest abuse scandals, there. I mean, I do think there are systemic institutional problems there, but I don't think it's as simple as saying when you have some kind of institutional hierarchy, you will always get this right abuse. Yeah. Because I think there's a way in which you get that kind of abuse without institutional hierarchy. It's just that that kind of institutionalism alters the way in which the wickedness works, the way in which right. it's brought to light, the, what makes it more difficult. So I, I don't think we, we should resist any kind of simplicities here. We should re- resist right. any kind of one note or two note responses that that address some dimension of the problem without getting a sense of, of just how multifaceted and multidimensional these, these problems are. Yeah. Well, to not to interrupt a flow of thought there at all, but I mean, I guess a question that I would bring out of that is to say, do you think though, that some of these institutionalized systems, some of this kind of celebrity culture as it relates to uh, Christian leadership, it may not be the root cause but that there is fruitful ground for those things to exist. Yeah. But I think that that's part of what makes the human condition tragic is that there mm-hmm. is always fruitful ground. And right. I, I mean, I, I kind of work in two worlds. I work a lot in kind of free church, independent Pentecostalism. And I work quite a bit in liturgical circles, charismatic liturgical circles. So I, I see a bit of both. I mean, I see some of that hierarchical institutional, structured and I see a lot of you know mega church independent church kind of um, family owned and operated churches right and they couldn't be more different in terms of how they're structured institutionally but they both are rife with corruption and they're both rife with hiding the failures of leaders you know I like Here's here's an example that may hit a little too close to home, depending on who's hearing this podcast. But 
just recently, a good friend of mine, I won't name anyone, but a good friend of mine had a colleague. He worked at a, a pretty large church and a colleague at the church was, was found to be involved in some stuff he shouldn't have been. And he was fired immediately, mm-hmm. like immediately, yeah. like just summarily fired on the spot. That same weekend, they hosted a minister who just with a few months ago publicly confessed to the same kind of stuff for that, that has been known for years. And he publicly confessed to it just a few months ago. So in the same week, they found out about one of their staff members who had made this, you know, made these mistakes, sinned in these ways, we would say, and fired him and then hosted someone who did the same thing but they're too big to fail. Their ministry is too big to fail. And that, that's not institutional hierarchy, right? Right. It's independent church, free church, family owned and operated business model. And it, but it's still corrupt, right? Yeah. So I I don't think changing the structure is going to solve that problem because I think it's, Mm. it's a problem in the human condition. And I think, it, it speaks to kind of the cleverness of evil, right? The way in which evil takes advantage of kind of whatever we do. Well, surely we have to say, and maybe, you know, you're, you're a wiser, smarter man than I, but surely we have to say to some degree, there, there must be something within the institution. And I always say to push that back when we talk about, you know, Ravi's exact case and we see, this, if anyone's not familiar, they can just Google it and they'll find it real quick. You can even go to Ravi Zacharias's like the ministry, right? RZIM, and yeah. see that they kind of posted the findings of the the you know the 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 looking into all the things that Ravi did, where the institution, right, the, the ministry itself actually confessed to its own sins. Yes. Of the protecting Ravi of of not listening to abusers of not listening to those who he had harmed and I think I even saw one today and the name's slipping from me but a newsletter of someone who is a friend um, of Ravi who who mentioned in his own letter how he saw how Ravi had actually kind of almost manipulated him to not listen to the things that yeah. were coming out you know pre his death. Um, but so there's, there must be something there to say that if the institution is willing to say, Hey, we made a mistake. We actually participate in the sin by hiding it. Surely we got to say at least to some degree, the institution does again, absolutely have some part to play, right? Well, a huge part to play. And I mean, I, I think the only point I'm making, I think I'm making just a, of a smaller detail uh, uh, observing a smaller detail, which is to say, it's never as simple as right either it's the hierarchy or it's the lack of accountability. Right. So right. in the Ravi Zacharias case, there's a kind of lack of accountability. He's a one man show. It's his, it's called Ravi Zacharias ministries. Somebody right. works right. for him. And that is one kind of problem. But if you're a part of the Catholic church, that's not a one man show and it's not an independent family owned and operated business. Right. But there can be profound failures institutionally in both cases and are right. profound failures. And so that's – I'm simply observing that, right? That it's, yeah. not a, it's not as simple as if we would just do away with all of these one-man ministries, we would solve the problem. 
Okay, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's really instructive to think about Ravi Zacharias alongside Jean Vanier, right? Who founded La Arche, and then last year or 2019, you know, we find out about how he had been preying on women almost exactly right. the same way that Ravi Zacharias. Right. And not just having sex with people, right? I don't think we should be scandalized by, you know, the fact that human beings fall into sexual sin. That's not the scandal here. I mean, that, that is its own problem and needs to be confronted. Right. This, is that, this is not that. This is not a case of, of somebody, you know, falling in love with somebody they shouldn't fall in love with, right? This is right. not Thomas Merton, you know, having a fling with a woman that he writes letters with and betrays his vows as a monk. This is not that, right? This or is Paul Tillich or Karl exactly. Barth or right. Yeah. yeah I mean, and, and Tillich and Bart, we that's a whole nother set of issues. <laughs> right. right. So this is predatory behavior interwoven right. with the spirituality where yeah. Zacharias and Vanier are, are not just, you know, having sex with people they shouldn't have sex with. They're using God's name and their ministerial heft to bring it about. Right. Right. They're, they're praying with their victims and using, you know, their supposed leverage with God to justify what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's corrupt right. on an entirely different level. But in every other way, those two men seem to have nothing in common. I mean, one of the things, and, you know, take this for what it's worth, but I mean, probably 10 years ago, I heard Ravi Zacharias say something that instantly turned me off to him. And I don't, I mean, we can get into the details or not, but I mean, it was one of those moments when I realized just from that, him saying that this is not somebody I trust. I'm not claiming to have some kind of prophetic insight or um, recognizing the level of corruption. Obviously I do, but I, right. It, it made me sick to my stomach. Right. But when I heard Vanier talk, I never heard that. Like I, I heard somebody right. who was cool and gentle and kind someone who gave his life to the people none of the rest of us want to deal with. Right. I think it's instructive, right? That I, I would say I'm not at all surprised. I mean, I'm surprised at the level and of course I'm sickened by it, but I'm not surprised that Ravi turned out to be a bad person. Like I sensed that in my gut a long time ago, but I didn't sense that about any and he was every right. predatory. And I think that that's what I mean by we should be careful jumping to conclusions, right? Like, I think Ravi's arrogance, you know, what made him claim to have degrees he didn't have and teaching posts he didn't have. I mean, all those were red, red flags. Right. But those same red flags weren't there for Vinny. And I think part of it is because he inhabited a different world. He's Catholic. He's European. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different world. And I, I think we have to be careful not to, not to rush to judgment about what set up these conditions. And yeah, so I could go on forever, but you, you can kind of see why I'm drawing. Yeah. Comparison. Well, and, and I think it's good, right? I mean, I think especially as we're dealing with a, a, a really big problem, right? That we're identifying, we're not over identifying the problem. Yeah. We're under identifying it, right? We're actually trying to correctly give space to here's the issues, uh, plural, right? Like yeah. there's, there's lots. It's, it is, yes, it's the institution, but it's not the institution. That's it. It's not just the, that, right? It's it's these other parts of way, especially the human condition, especially, you know, the maybe for Ravi, it's the one man show thing, and maybe, um, and I, I don't, I'm familiar with, but not really deep into what happened with John, right? Like I know what kind of happened, but 
it's a different world, right? Yeah. It's a different world apart it's from the world that I inhabit uh, very often. But I think, you know, one of the things that I think is being brought out of this conversation, especially with someone, especially with them both, right, is the the spiritual abuse, right? Yes. This what you were talking about, right? But I, I think I want to be careful too because I was – pondering how someone was talking about the spiritual abuse of Ravi and how his, and I'm guessing it's probably very much the same with John, right? This using of God to get what yep. one wants, right? Absolutely. Which again, we shouldn't just be sex, uh, scandalized about it being sexually because it's often used in various different ways Absolutely. and spiritual abuse, using God to get what one wants, right? Mm-hmm. And abusing someone in the process. But I, I think about almost from the other side, right? It's easy for me to think about the leaders who have failed and go, how bad are you? And how bad it's worse. It's worse that you did, you did it through spiritual abuse, right? Yeah. Right. But I have to step back sometimes and go, but I think that almost lessens the abuse that someone else has received in the physical sense when we are so quick to go, it's worse that they used God's name in it. But I don't know if that changes that fact for the person who's abused as much as they've just been abused. Well, Does that make sense? Maybe. But I think if you read the accounts, I think that's a violation on a deeper level. Yeah. I don't think it means that if you were violated without that, it's somehow not a real violation. I mean, right. I I mean, right, right. I mean, yeah. But I think, I think everybody recognizes that there's a dimension of use, especially for those who can be preyed on in that way. Right. Right. I think Vanier, there, there's stories about him praying with women, P R A Y I N G with women for a long time before he started praying on them. P R E Y. Yeah. And if you read their testimonies, many of them will say that that, violated them in a way they don't know how to explain that. Like mm-hmm. if he yeah. had been a, a quote unquote dirty old man, which is, you know, a terrible phrase that tries to excuse the behavior with a label, that'd be, that'd be bad enough. Right. But for him to be someone they learned to pray with P R A Y for right. so long, yeah. it does afflict them. I think in some other way, I don't, I don't think it's a matter of better or worse or more. Right. Exactly. Just yeah. But it is a different thing. It's a different dimension of the evil. Yeah. And I think makes them predators of a different kind. They're not just, you know, sex sexual predators who who need something sexually. That that's something else altogether. What when right. I don't I don't think it's worse is probably not the right word, but it, but it is it's a different category. And I think yeah. if you treat this like you know, it's an issue of sexual morality primarily. We're missing the point. There, there's something right. going on there that is. Yeah. Is and, not- I, and I like how you frame that because that's, that's where I've been a bit uncomfortable with some of the conversations that I've seen where for some it's, it's a worse, it would have been better if it didn't have God involved, that kind of yeah. thing. And that's where I'm not uncomfortable a way to frame that. Um, because I do think you're right. It is a deepening. It is a, in some sense, it's a vulnerability. I think the only analogy in my head I was thinking about is as if someone were a, uh, you know, abused by their psychiatrist, someone that one has opened themselves up to yeah. for help. Absolutely. 
and then that use of that help to abuse someone, right? Absolutely. So I guess part of my question, Chris, from like your vantage point, you know, what do we do theologically, right? If, if we're not overgeneralizing it by saying the institution needs to change, needs more accountability, it's the institution's fault. And we're also not going to do, hey, it's all Ravi, even though he is the biggest part to play here for sure. But there's something else going on. How do we think about this theologically, holistically, in a sense of saying, here's how we attack such a big issue that has found, I mean, we've got others, right? I mean, it's not just Ravi or John, but you've also got the pastor of Hillsong. His name is Carl Lentz. Carl Lentz, right? In 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 a different way. Right, because that's not predatory in the same way. I think it's right. He he shouldn't be a pastor, and he should answer for those things. But what he did was a sin, and better and worse is not the language to use here. But it's a problem, right? It's it's not the it's not the same. And that's the hard part is people try to pair these things, right? So, what would you say is a, a theological vision for fixing ourselves? And I'm, clearly, it's not us fixing our own self, but what do we do? Yeah, this is tough. I mean, this is tough to, to do because I think our instincts are to fix and to think that there are things we can do to fix. Right. And I want to be careful about that. I, I don't think that we're simply left hopeless and that we just have to resign to the fact that there are going to be abuses no matter what we do. I mean, I'm not in any way advocating some kind of defeatism here or fatalism. But I also think we have to be careful not to just do the first thing that seems possible to us as if that's going to to solve the issue. So let me talk around it a little bit and and try to name different dimensions of this. So so one, one thing I think we need to think more about is... There's a, there's a long wisdom here in the Jewish, Christian, and, and Muslim tradition that the closer we get to God, the more vulnerable we are. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. one of the lies that pop evangelicalism gives us, is that you can get close enough to God that you kind of conquered all of those things, right? And so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. In, there are certain circles, holiness, Pentecostal circles, that talk about sanctification mm-hmm. in that kind of way, right? That you can reach a point right. in your life where— you're sanctified. We, we, the church I grew up in, this tiny church in rural Oklahoma, one of the members there was, was named Brother Wright, which he could not have been more aptly named, Brother Wright. <laughs> and he claimed to be so sanctified, not only could he not sin, he could not be tempted. And then oh, one gosh. Year, yeah, yeah, he could not be tempted. And then one year, Brother Wright stood up to tell us all that he had not sinned for the, I think it was the 17th consecutive year. He had committed no sins. That, but, wow. What a, what a, what a feat. Exactly. But that we <laughs> were so sinful that if he did not leave the church, he would probably be tempted to sin by us. And so that, that was the end. We didn't see brother Wright again. Uh-huh. Um, so there's that kind of, I mean, obviously that's a character. It's, it's that maybe that Pentecostal holiness vision of the, the, the old man, the Adam, right, yeah, is dead, being right? completely abolished or completely taken away, right? Absolutely. And and there there that was an idea that that had a, had its season, and there were for a time a lot of people who bought into that notion. But in kind of the the broader circles now, no one would frame it like that. But there is this sense in which I think we think that if you're if you're a serious Christian for long enough. 
you kind of get past all that stuff, right? And it right. shouldn't happen anymore. But but that's that's utterly wrong. I mean, so the if those who don't know this work, the the John John of the latter, John Climacus, writes about the Desert Fathers, and he tell he mostly tells stories about what he learned from these monks in the desert. In the you know, it's an ancient ancient text, and one of the things that he comes to over and over and over again. It's almost in these stories, it's almost always the most accomplished monk, the, the holiest one who becomes the access point for evil in the community that huh. th- those are the people because in what it turns out in these stories, and I encourage everybody to read them if they haven't, but what often happens in these is that the demons play this long game of deception so they will let someone have decades of uh, spiritual, ex- intense spiritual experiences, visions of angels, miracles, levitation, so on and so on. But right. it's all a part of a long con of convincing them that this is because of their holiness, convincing them that this is because yeah. they, they're superior to everyone else. And then late in life, once they've been given status within the community because of their miracles – and because of their piety, then preying on their real weakness that's been hidden all of this time. Yeah. I, I think we need a much more sophisticated, discerning account of how evil actually preys on us than we have, right? We, we're not only naive about human nature, we're naive about how evil works. Right. And, and, and different, different than what I hear you saying, though, I just, because I want to be clear with it, because I, there's some kind of like old uh, church language that's coming back to me just in hearing that though, because we have to be clear that we're not saying just blaming things on the devil. No, no. Absolutely. Right. Like the devil did it. Right. It's actually recognizing the, the way in which evil is enacting upon us. Absolutely. So one of the ways I talk about this is to say that evil always works in two ways that are running against each other Two kind of a, if you, in terms of military movement, it's always a pincer movement. So yeah. there's always a demonic attack, a, an attack of darkness and destruction and chaos that threatens us. And then there is always a false light and a false order, a mm. response mm. Yeah. that promises to solve the problem that we're threatened by. And evil, I think, virtually always works in this way. It it threatens us, it frightens us with darkness, and then it offers us a false light to drive away the darkness. Yeah, and yeah. That, that's what – you're not blaming the devil. I mean that's, that's – it's not scapegoating the devil for our failure. <laughs> but it is to say that evil is very much at work in the world. And we yeah. – if we are not discerning about it and if we are not ready to resist it, you know, as Jesus has done and as Scripture calls us to do, we will be – we will fall prey to it. And I think we will almost always fall prey to that second movement, what I'm calling the satanic movement, the, the movement of false light and false order. Right. Which, to solve the problem. You know, we could use some real, real, heh, real world analogies. There's the term. Yeah, right. And especially from what uh, I think a lot of people, if they'd step back and look at this, they'll see that exact thing. And, and I don't want to derail this. And I don't want to talk about it, but just as the analogy is, our political discourse yes. is consistently 
here's this big problem. If this happens, the world is going to end, but here we are and we're here to fix it and to make sure it. Absolutely. And it always is that narrative, right? I think about another analogy that's kind of partaking in that political analogy too is from our from our mutual kind of denominational or kind of theological you know history uh, those who claim to be prophets absolutely often I see the same the same kind of yeah. strategy right here's all that's wrong and here's the problem or here's the fix absolutely. and and I've got the fix because I'm the prophet right yeah. because I hear from God and you can hear from me yep. right and I, I like what you're saying there because it really is two-sided it's yep. such a deeply yeah i'll give two examples one from scripture and then one from current events i mean so in corinthians we read second corinthians we read about some man that the community has excommunicated now we don't know if it's the man from first corinthians or not but he's right. committed some sin and they've excommunicated him and he's tried to return and they won't let him they, they won't let him back into the community and yeah. Paul, that's at the, that's the point at which Paul says we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. This man is forgiven. Let him be reconciled. And huh. what you see, is the, the the Satan's devices were obvious to Paul, but not to the community, right? So if if you imagine like a circle on the board, you you have and then an X outside that circle. They thought this man was the problem, his sin, whatever it was, and that if they could just get him outside of the circle keep the X outside of the circle, they would be safe. Right. But Satan's tactic was always to make the whole community fall into self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And the way to do that is to let them scapegoat this single man. Mm. Yeah. What yeah. Is, is you thought it was about that man. It was about your community. Right. And I, and I think, you know, you and I have been friends for a long time. I mean, that's what I think the American culture wars are about. And I know right. this is hard for a lot of people to hear. I think there are problems along the political spectrum. I, mean, I think there are problems on the left as well as the right. And I think, quote unquote, progressive Christians, there's a lot that they need to deal with. But there is something about conservative Christian Christians who are involved in the in who get involved in the culture wars that is something else. And it, it is it to me is an alignment with the satanic motivated by a fear of the demonic right and that that whatever that is 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 what's killing us like that is the thing that's closest to home that's actually destroying us it's not the stuff out there yeah it's not the gender community that's actually threatening or or even the the marxist and the socialist no i mean <laughs> right even the scripture says judgment begins in the house of god because the problem is is far closer to home than that and i i think that's honestly that's fascinating right and 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 to me it makes sense when you think about the use of those narratives the use of those kind of narratives of that pointing out you know for, for lack of better terms, being fear mongers, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe there might be something to fear, but the overblowing of that fear, I mean, right? The over, right? But it's such a powerful narrative by which we can build kingdoms. Absolutely, right? It's so. If it's it's as 
what we see with happening with conspiracy theory, kind of thought and thinking. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, we have churches that use this same tactic. Here's this thing to be afraid of, but we can protect you with this over here. Yeah. Right. And we can grow a big church. We can grow a big group. We can have power. We can, and it, and it is a bad cycle that just continually keeps going because the more that it worked one time, now the fear has got to be bigger. It's got to be deeper. And we've got to claim to have something even more powerful. Right. right. And, and, and you can justify once you think like that, you can justify anything. Yeah. Like once you, so let, let me let me give you the, the more recent example. So if that's a biblical example, a kind of, and I, and I could talk about the Legion story. I think it makes the same point. But there was a, a Catholic philosopher named Michael Novak who he won the Templeton Prize. He wrote a, a really really well known book about Christianity and democracy in the West. And from all accounts, I never met him personally, but I had I have friends who knew him personally. He was one of the just kindest people that have ever lived. Right, just an astonishing person, apparently. But when I think about this problem, he's the person that comes to mind. So in 2010, he wrote a piece for First Things magazine about Iran and Iran's nuclear program. So this was in the, you know, the middle of the war on terror, which I guess is still going. Right. And unfortunately, right? Yeah. Gosh. And <laughs> the, he writes a piece Right after Easter, about how on Easter, he was for Easter, he was in Jerusalem, and on Easter, he went to the, the, the Mount of the Sermon, the, the Mount of the Beatitudes. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Beatitudes on Easter, he has this realization that if we don't do something different, Iran is going to use its nuclear weapon, weapons program to destroy Israel and destroy these holy places. And so he says, we have to be willing to do whatever it takes to keep Iran from being able to do what it wants to do. Because mm. what is Christianity if we don't have our holy places? So I encourage everybody who's hearing this, go and look it up. First Things Magazine, 2010, April 2010, Michael Novak. I think the title of the article is Imagining the Loss of Christian Holy Places. Huh. And he, he says outright that he, he talks about Reinhold Niebuhr, who supposedly had this kind of conversion from liberal to neo-Orthodox Christianity. That really was a shift from kind of liberal politics, foreign policy politics, to a kind of conservatism that called for, quote unquote, political realism, which translates to you have to be willing to do whatever you have to do to keep your enemy. Right. right? Political right. realism means anything is justified. Right. And that realism part also means we're right and everyone else is wrong. Well, sure. You've got to assume that. But that, I mean, it's a kind of like if you really love the good, this is the logic. If you really love the good, there's no evil that doesn't that isn't right. Doing right. In the name of the good. Right. And Michael Novak, I mean, essentially says that. I mean, everybody can go and read it for themselves. I mean, he he says, you know, we have to strike first. We have to. And of course, it's just an extension of that of the logic that led to the Iraq war in the first place, right? Of, of, you know, we, we have to strike the enemy before the enemy strikes us, which was right. already from the Christian just war tradition. I mean, all kinds of problems with that. But what you can see is the logic is the demonic threat is we're going to lose our holy places. We're going to lose. And notice he's not concerned about 
the Israelite or Israeli people. He's not concerned about Jews. He's not concerned about any human beings. He's concerned about symbolic places that his religion cares about. Hmm. And yeah. and he's this is I don't I don't I cannot overstate how clearly I think this is an example of how Satan works. Here's a, a godly man, a, a very educated man, yeah, sitting on the Sermon on the Mount mountain, right on the Mount of the Beatitudes, where Jesus <laughs> turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, blessed are you when they persecute you, sitting on that mountain. He's talking about advocating nuclear warfare to defect to defend this place. Right. I will defend this place by violating everything about the man, God, who gave us the teaching from this place about how to live. That's right. what Satan does. That's what Satan does right there. Right. And it's not to say that Satan's to blame, not Michael Novak. I mean, those are Michael Novak's words, not Satan. <laughs> right. But that's how satanic evil preys on us. It, it gets yeah. even the best of us, even the smartest of us, even the best read of us to do things that are absolutely antichrist. And, and it's because it's logical, right? I well, mean, yeah, honestly, if you bought into that way of thinking, yeah, it's logical. Once, once you have, you can make logical arguments, which makes it all the much harder to speak out against. They yeah. may be built on false premises or evil mm-hmm. premises, but once it's it's got this logical these logical legs beneath them, it's hard to say this is why that doesn't work. Yeah. And I think I think that's you know partially you know unfortunately the reality of things like Facebook debates and whatever yeah. Twitter threads, right? Because there is this sense in which once you've bought into those premises, there is no amount of logic that actually brings you out. Yeah, so l- let me speak to that because I think that we're talking about two related but different things here. So, you know, when we were talking about earlier, we were talking about kind of Ravi and Vanier talking about kind of Catholic hierarchical institutional right. structures and, you know, celebrity culture, one man ministry shows. And we were talking about the ways in which they're different, but they can both be corrupt, right? And they can both right. lead to profound abuses. So I think that what Novak represents is a kind of quote-unquote realism, which is, yes, Jesus is wonderful, but sometimes you have to be willing to act in ways that contradict Jesus in right. order to keep caring about Jesus, right? And so there's that dimension. But I think that the people in my world, the people that I'm around the most, have bought into the what is more or less the opposite lie, which is a, a lie about what we need is a kind of spirituality that supersedes everything that's worldly. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the people who say, you know, don't be political. Like this is about prayer and about changing hearts. And if we all just, if we would just enter into our prayer closets and meet God one-on-one, these things would sort themselves out, right? That what matters is not how you involve yourself in, quote unquote social justice. What matters is spirituality. What matters is prayer and fasting and Bible study and so on. And I think that that form of spirituality ends up creating a a kind of space that's trance like, that's neither in this world nor not in this world. It's it's a kind of dreamlike state in which 
we're deeply involved in doing stuff, but it just doesn't matter, right? So I, I right. went to a particular church, but there was a church last year in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident where they had a prayer service to cast out the spirit of racism. And they had a woman oh, yeah. on stage with a staff, Gandalf staff, and say right. the spirit of racism right. shall not pass, right? That That is the opposite of what Mo, Michael Novak was doing, right? So Novak was saying... I love Jesus and I love Jesus so much. Like Peter, I'll take up my sword to defend him. If Jesus yeah. is not going to defend himself, then I will defend him. Right. Right. I have more respect, even though I think that is utterly antichrist. <laughs> I actually, because that's what's closer to home for me are people who spiritualize in a way that takes them out of reality altogether. Yeah. Right. Does that make and, sense? And, and they exist. Yeah. When they're trying. out there, they're, they're doing nothing. It, it's not helping anybody in any way. Right. It, it is. It is. It's dissociative state. It's a kind but of. The problem is those in that state. They actually think they're doing everything. That's right. And that's one of the right. ways you know you're in that state. If you really think that you're going to come up after 500 years of modern racism and use Gandalf's staff as a prop and really change everything, you should know right away you're dreaming. Like you're, you are, you are absolutely kidding yourself. Right. And so I, but I, here's, here's one of the ironies. If you stay in that world long enough, then you can justify being realistic. And one of the things that troubled me, and I want to be careful here, I'm not saying I'm troubled by every Christian who voted for Trump. That's not my point. Right. Right. Because we also don't want to build that same fear thing that we're talking about. Absolutely. And engage in the same thing. That's right? why when people say things like, you know, Trump is the worst president we've ever had, like read a book. Like <laughs> give yourself a favor and read a book. Like Trump is offensive in his own way, but you know, I and my critiques of the president who came before Trump um are are on the record too. So it's not a this is not about Trump. But right. there, there was one of the things that sh- I think should bother us is the ways in which a lot of people that I think inhabit that trance-like, dissociative state, hyper-spiritual, cast-out-the-spirit-of-racism stuff, where a lot of quote-unquote prophets live, who justified their support of Trump on the grounds that we don't elect a pastor, we needed we needed a bully, right? We need someone right. to fight for us. And and what happens, and, and this is this is the way evil works, right? If, if you primarily want to inhabit that ultimately unrealistic state that I'm calling the dissociative state, the the void in which you are just dreaming, you need somebody who will do the quote unquote real work for you, the dirty work for you in the real world right. that yeah. keeps you from getting dirty. So you right. want people who are doing unspeakable things in your name so you don't have to. You remember the the movie, the Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson movie where they're trying him because of Jack Nicholson's character was involved in abusing soldiers. And he says, you know, you need me on that wall. You need me out there doing these evil things so you can sleep at night. Right. And that, that is, there is a way in which that myth does perpetuate itself and that we, we want to resist both of those temptations, right? The temptations to be realistic in a way that's false Jesus, but also we want to resist any kind of spirituality that cuts us off from the real world or makes us think that we're going to, you know, solve the world's problems 
right? You know, with some kind of prop uh, or 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 some kind of prayer. And I, I think part of the issue is we've just not read our scripture very well. You know, so I, I, yeah. I'll respond to that in a moment. But I, I think the heart of it is scripture does not romanticize the stories of its characters. You know, no. every mm-hmm. character in scripture is. A, I, I don't. I, I would hate to say every character is tragic, but every character's life is touched by the tragic, including the life. Right. Of and if we were better readers of scripture, I think we would be a little less naive about what's actually happening in our own lives and the lives of the people around us. Yeah. It's not to make this one's just well overstated. I I don't know if we can overstate it, but it's overstated. Right. But I mean, looking at David, right. I mean, just learning the story of David better and recognizing this man after God's own heart was at the beginning stages of David's life. And by the end, everything is terrible. It's tragic family life, everything, all precipitated by the rape of Bathsheba, right? It's this, it's a very easily trackable narrative, but most people can't get over the idea, the fairy tale idea of, well, it's said at one point, David was a man after God's own heart. So that must mean that was always the case and everything he did, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I was, yeah, I was, I was just talking with some friends about this yesterday. Like, I think that you can read the David and Michael story right along those lines that David at that point in the story, David, you know, so Michael, we, Pentecostals love to tell this story, right? Because David is having the ark brought into Jerusalem and he's dancing before the ark and Michael yeah. looks out and sees him and despises him in her heart and then confronts him with, you know, you belittled yourself in the presence of all these slave girls. And David says, you know, I'll, I'll belittle myself even more next time. Right. Right. He actually says more than that. If you go back and read, I mean, what he says is, unbelievably cruel. I mean, he tells her, the first thing he tells her is, God chose me over your father. And the last mm. thing he tells her is, those slave girls you're worried about, they're going to love what I'm going to do next even more. So it's very clear at this point that David is thinking of himself in the third person. He's, yeah. he's a persona. He's not a person anymore. He is, David is playing his idea of David. And he's in mm. love with his idea of David. Yeah. And there's a there's a moment early in the story with David and Michael in which Saul sends people to kill David in the middle of the night, and she knows it's coming and she gets David to escape and she puts an idol in his bed to disguise that David is not there and it's a foreshadowing of what will happen later in her life that one David will not be in her bed anymore and he will be an idol in his own bed and mm. that. I mean, scripture is just unrelentingly honest, brutally honest about its characters, especially David, right? And the fact that we don't know that tells you everything you need to know about how we read scripture and how we read our own lives and the lives of the people around us. As as an example, right, I I was having a conversation with someone who won't be named, but someone that you and I both know uh, pretty well. But I was having a conversation with them and I was just pointing out, you know, the failure of the apostles post Acts chapter two, post the falling of the spirit, how Paul is is honest with their failings, how Luke is honest with their failings in the book of Acts. Like the New Testament is anything but, again, also unrelenting to the apostles failures 
after Christ had left them and after the spirit had fallen. But the response was they didn't sin after. They didn't sin after Acts chapter two. None of that was wrong, right? Like they couldn't. As if, again, that problem of, of that sinfulness of humanity is just easily washed away, right? As if, as, if, yeah. as if the Bible's not honest of this is a deeper issue than we can just fix in a chapter, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Chris, Absolutely. I mean, that's deeply troubling, deeply troubling. Chris, um, you know, we're coming to, to wrap up, but so I, I'll ask the question because sometimes these conversations and they are heavy and they're deep conversations and, you know, they're ones that the church needs to have because we are seeing this, this cycle and the various different ways that we've talked about in leadership and politics and, and these narratival yep. ideologies, right? Where sin kind of, or evil creeps in through these narratives. But I would, I would say to try and give us something to end here, where's the hope? Mm-hmm. And and I know yes we could just be like Jesus right and of course Jesus right but that doesn't give us something to actually kind of move forward with for those listening and for you know even for me where would you see the hope is in us overcoming these narr- narratives and kind of moving forward as the church yeah I'm not sure I have a lot that's really helpful I mean I, I have some I, I have definitely have some thoughts but I I, I don't feel. I certainly don't have answers, right? So I, I, the first thing I would say is we have got to be better readers of Scripture. I, yeah. I don't think that's enough. I don't think that's sufficient to fix anything. Right. But we have to repent of the way we've read Scripture. And one of the things I've become, you've heard me say this, but I, I really am convinced of it, that conservative Christians like to talk about what Scripture is so they don't actually have to read it. Mm. We like to talk yeah. about how it's inspired and inerrant and infallible, right. so we don't actually have to yeah. do the work of paying attention to what it says. And I don't think it's a solve. I don't think it's a silver bullet. But we have to read scripture better, right? And especially the narratives. I think like, <laughs> right. what the stories say and what they do and and how they work and. You know, you're not going to figure that out on one reading. You're going to have to keep reading and rereading and rereading and read with people who are not from your circles. So that that's right. in terms of what do we do? I think that's one of the things that we do. I think we need to think about the ways in which all of these problems are are always multi-dimensional and layered. It's never as simple as well celebrity culture or hierarchy or fame or maleness or <laughs> right, right or gift i mean nothing's ever simple like that i mean those those are dimensions of problems for sure but don't 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 overestimate how how complex human beings are right and how clever evil is right so don't i, I think it's absolutely critical that we have a better sense of of that right and and again i don't think it's an accident that the spirituality in which ravi zacharias thrives was an evangelical spirituality that doesn't want to watch movies that have curse words and doesn't want to read scripture in which their characters fail. They, they don't want to be in reality. They don't right. want to face what it means to be human. And yeah. again, I don't think that's the only world in which we, you know, sin happens. Like I said, 
Vanier is just as pre- much a predator as, as Zacharias is. But the world I inhabit is a world that mostly is unrealistic. It's, it's right. living in a dissociative state in which being spiritual and talking about Jesus or talking about the spirit and talking about loving God protects you from having to face what it means to be human. And it's, it's not going to solve everything, but we have to repent of that. We have to break that habit. We have to face that reality for what it is. Right. So that, that's one side of it. I think theologically, our hope ultimately is in the judgment of God, that the judgment of God is not only certain, in other words, nobody's getting by with anything. (laughs) Nobody in the end is, is getting past God without answering for what they're doing. That justice is coming. But that the good news that justice is coming is that God's justice is restorative. It makes right what was wrong. Right. It doesn't right. just doesn't it doesn't just not let you get by with what was wrong. It makes right what was wrong. And I, I think, you know, that's beyond the scope of this conversation, but I think we need an understanding of the last judgment, of the coming of God, of eschatology that allows us to say that's a creative act of God in which all of these wrongs, including the Holocaust, including rape, these rapes by Vanier and Zacharias and Carl Lentz's affair and all the sins I've committed, not that all of those are the same, that God is going to make those right. And he's going to make them right. Not only for me, he's going to make them right for the people I harmed. Right. And for the people Robbie Zacharias harmed and, and and so on. And, it, and if, if that's not going to happen, then our hope is in vain. If God cannot right. do that, then he's not, a, he's not the God we say he is. He's not the right. God we believe in. So when you say, where's the hope? The hope is in a God who comes and sets things right. Right. And until then, as we wait on that, for us to keep that hope alive, to, to keep witnessing to that hope, and, and to be truthful and honest with each other and ourselves about what's going on. So I, I think that there's a lot more to say, but that's where I would start. And I think agents of that hope too, right? Absolutely. And enacting that work of that redemptive justice in yeah. what limited capacity we may be able to do it. Yeah. And right? I, think, I think, I think it's, here's another example, but we can go down this line forever, but in evangelical circles that I inhabit, and this is not the only problem and I don't inhabit every circle, obviously, but in my circles, there are magical ideas about forgiveness that need to be confronted, right? I think forgiveness is essential, but we need justice, not just forgiveness, right? So we don't need to just, part of the problem, part of the reason we can't confront something like racism is that we want to just forgive and move on, but that's not forgiveness. Right. Right. There is no forgiveness, no no truly, there's no true forgiveness where there's not restoration and reconciliation and wholeness. And and there's no, there's no, peace without justice. And that we've got to learn that, right? And our circles, yeah. we do not want to learn that. There's no Gandalf staff that's going to nope. fix it and then move on, right? As much as we may want, and that'd be nice. And I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, so yay for Gandalf well, and all things. It's but. False to, well, it's false to Lord of the Rings. And, and the thing is, it wouldn't be nice like that. We've got that world. We've got the world in which and, and I mean, I'm getting a little fired up here, so you're going to have to cut me off. But I mean, <laughs> part of the reason people invent this kind of fake trance state dissociative spirituality is they don't want to be made to feel bad for supporting mm-hmm. things that are bad. Yeah. 
right? They don't want to be made to feel bad for the fact that their way of life is built on the back of slavery and genocide right. of the peoples. But the fact of the matter is, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a house. I come from a family that has generational wealth. And if it had not been for genocide and racism and slavery, I wouldn't live here. I wouldn't have the life I have. Right. And I am answerable for that. I didn't do it all. I didn't choose it all. But I am caught up in that history. And all of right. us are. And we will never be truthful with each other until we realize you, you're going to have to feel bad. Right. Part of the problem with this spirituality I'm critiquing right now is it's a, it's averse to pain. It does not want any, it does not right. want yeah. about, about mm-hmm. anything. Right. And, it's supposed to fix all those bad feelings. And it just, right. the, the truth hurts. Well, I think right. what's closer to the truth is to say the truth shows us where we have been hurt and where we're hurting right. the people. And we've got to be truthful with each other. Maybe I, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to already plan our next conversation. <laughs> uh, in which case, maybe we should, you know, reach out and see if Jamar Tisby wants to come and be a part of that conversation sure. and really discuss that. What redemptive justice looks like that may hurt and should hurt. Absolutely hurts. Uh, as we come work. Um, Chris. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say. I mean, I think the. There's a, there's a distinction between hurting and harming that I think we want to come back here. I don't think God ever harms us. I don't think right. the truth ever harms us, but it does hurt. Yeah. And I think that the problem with the spirituality you and I have been given is that it cannot tell the difference between hurting and harming. Well, it's, it's like a surgery, right? A uh, surgery hurts, but it repairs if it's a good surgery, right? Exactly. It's not it's not being bludgeoned by a sword yep. in a similar sense through the gut in which it's harming, right? Absolutely. Big, big difference. Chris, um, I appreciate you, man. As always, yep. loved our conversation, loved our time. Um, everyone should go and follow Chris on Twitter because he will get fired up and it's beautiful and wonderful. Uh, Chris, what's your Twitter handle again? C.E.W. Green. As That's Dr. Right. But as Kenneth Tanner, Father Kenneth Tanner says, he calls me C.E.W. You should, you should <laughs> pronounce it sometimes. If you haven't had Father Kenneth on, on the podcast, you should. He's great. Not oh, just how he pronounces my name. Uh, well, but that'll be a big part. Yeah. So can you just yeah. this is, this that's, is that's that's a trick that you bring him on to. to, to. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, man, thanks. Uh, I'm Again, we've, it looks like we've already planned another one. That'll probably be next season, but we'll, we'll get there. Cool.